So I was thinking of things that our non-Catholic or ex-Catholic friends like to pick on us for. Like, this is a good gospel reading for that. It's also a good gospel reading just for the, the context of like going back to being rooted in the person of Jesus. And being rooted in the person of Jesus. So when our Lord talks to the crowds about the scribes and the Pharisees, it's interesting how he doesn't say just ignore them, but he acknowledges the fact that they've taken their seat on the chair of Moses, that they have authority to teach you. So do and observe all things, whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. So they have the authority to teach you, even if like, their behavior is not congruent with their own teaching. And he talks about those kinds of behaviors. Right? They tie up heavy burdens for carry, but they're not, they don't like, help to lift the burden. They perform works to be seen by others. They widen their phylacteries, right? A phylactery was like a box that they wear on their forehead. Inside of it, it said, I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, which, is, which has to do with an interior state of the heart, but they just wanted to have a big box on their head so that everybody in... So that people assume that we have that interior disposition of heart. It's the opposite of the kind of transparency I was talking about in the earlier conference, right? Where, like, our interior disposition is what people see rather than a kind of a mask where we put on a facade of an exterior disposition hoping people will see that and not see what's in our hearts. And he comes down to giving them this advice about not being called rabbi, not being called master. Call no one on earth your father, you have but one father in heaven. That everything has to point back to an interior disposition of conversion and being rooted in the fatherhood of God. You know, and it's funny, like that line, you know, and the evolution of the way that we call priest father in the Catholic Church, and that's part of our tradition. You know, St. Paul, very like shortly after the time of Jesus, refers to the people he writes as his children that he begat through his preaching of the gospel. So that relationship, that father-son, father-daughter relationship between the apostles and the people, like that's always existed. Now, in Italy, I had a really interesting conversation with the uncle of my sister once. Or maybe it was her cousin. It might be like a cousin or the son of her great aunt or something. Um, his name was Per Luigi. And, um, and we were talking, and, and so he's somebody who doesn't like go to Mass or anything, but doesn't go to mass, but he's spiritual. Sometimes we're like, oh, those are the bad people. But sometimes they're like the people who actually know what's going on. 
Right? I was reading a book by a psychologist once, and he said, if you really want to know your family history, find like the, like the crazy uncle that nobody talks to because he knows what's going on. <laughs> and so I'm talking to Pierre Luigi, and he said to me, you know, in my life, I never talked to the Don, but I always talked to the Padre, which is super interesting because in Italian culture, diocesan priests go by Don, like... Like, people would meet me, and they'd say, okay, Don Sean. <laughs> like, doesn't sound good. <laughs> but they would go by Don. It's like a more formal thing, which is a derivative of Dominus, which is, a deriv- which is the, Italian, or the Latin word for Lord. Right? And so the diocesan priest would go by Don, and the religious order priest would always go by Padre, or Father. So the Franciscan would always be Padre, so-and-so. And, uh, and they tended to be less formal and, like, more real and more in, like, tune with the lives of the people. And, and what that revealed was that, like, one of them lived that title as a relationship. And the other one lived that title from a place of authority. And when I was in army chaplain school... We're mixed in with all these Southern Baptists and, you know, like people who think they really believe in Jesus and we just believe in like sacraments or whatever that means. You know, they, they're just confused about that. And I was in chaplain school in 2003 with Father Brian Kane. Was, he was in my class that summer. And uh, there were about five seminarians, two priests, and then all these like other denominations. And I remember, you know, we were doing introductions and Father Kane stands up. My name is Father Brian Kane. Da 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 da. I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I heard this Southern Baptist guy behind me going under his breath. I'm never calling that guy Father. It's okay. You don't have to. <laughs> but you know, Father Brian Kane is somebody I have a lot of admiration for, and he actually like lives his fatherhood very well, and he really cares about people, and people can see that he cares about them. And by the end of our 12 weeks at chaplain school, everybody in the class was calling him Father Kane because it just kind of came naturally to them. You know, and people will ask me when I go to like, you know, conferences with Protestants or when I'm going to a secular training and addiction treatment, you know, they'll be like, what do you want to be called? And I'm like, well, I call myself Father Sean in order to remind myself who I am, but you can call me whatever you want. And usually, hopefully, it reveals to me by the end that, like, oh, they do, like, have that relationship with me because they'll start calling me Father Sean. You know, it goes to the fact that like everything we believe and we hold and our practices and our customs and all of that, like it's meant to be the expression of a relationship that already exists. You know, an expression of a relationship that already exists. And our own interior life is about moving into and deeper into that relationship. The Pharisees are all about, like, doing what you have to do in order to look like a good Jew. And our Lord criticizes them for that and says things like, rend your hearts, not your garments. That the interior disposition is what matters. And everything else is good. 
But the order is important. The order is important. And today we celebrate this votive mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And in her too, we see like an order that's important. Because Mary has lots of titles. You know, when we do the litany of Loretto, it's like Star of the Sea, Gate of Heaven, Morning Star, Ark of the Covenant. And she has all of these titles. And she's the mother of the church. And she's the daughter of Zion. Von Balthasar talks about how necessary it is that she's the daughter of Zion in order to be the mother of the church. That there's an order. It's part of all of the preaching and catechesis I do is the order of love, that we're a son or a daughter first, then husband, wife, then mother, father. And so Mary's motherhood, it's dependent on the daughterhood that she experiences with our Lord first. And when we hold her up as a model, we oftentimes, we emphasize her motherhood. We emphasize her active, like, moment of, let it be done to me according to your word. Right? We emphasize her fiat. You know, I'm sure as women and as mothers, like when it's, you know, take Mary as your model, that's what comes to mind is I have to be a mother like Mary's a mother and I have to say, let it be done to me according to your word. The deeper question, though, is how does Mary, how is Mary able to say, let it be done to me according to your word? And there might be a, a deeper answer than just simply, well, she was conceived without sin, so she can say that. Well, that's not very helpful because none of us were conceived without sin. So we can't, like, go and do that because of that reason. And that's when people get, like, they're like, it's unfair. They're jealous of the Blessed Mother because she was conceived without sin. Like, how did she have it so good? And, like, it's not really fair. You know, in the story of the visitation, there's something of a logic to how she's able to do that. And it has everything to do with her being the daughter of Zion first. So in Luke's gospel, Mary sets out and travels to the hill country in haste, where she encounters the house of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth. And Elizabeth hears her greeting. The baby jumps in her womb. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment, the sound of your greeting reached my ears. The infant leapt in my womb, leapt for joy. And then this line, this really important line comes. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. Super interesting line coming from Elizabeth, right? They're relatives. Elizabeth's much older. The same angel went to Mary appeared to Joseph in a dream, and appeared to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah. Same angel. When the angel appears to Mary, says, you're going to conceive and bear a son, and you shall, you know, she says, let it be done to me according to your word. When the angel, the same angel goes to Zechariah and says, your wife is going to bear a son in her old age, he's like, yeah, right. Not possible. She's 90. He doesn't believe what the angel says. And for that is struck dumb. 
and he can't speak. And so Elizabeth's experiences, the angel came and announced this, and my husband didn't believe it. I didn't believe it, but it's happening. But Mary's blessed because she believed what was spoken to her by the Lord. And so Mary responds to that affirmation. It's kind of a question of, how is it that you were able to believe and we weren't? And her answer is the Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. So she responds praising God for what he's done for her in her lowliness. And then she says, the Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She doesn't say the Almighty has done a great thing for me, and holy is his name. But he's done great things for me. And when we read kind of the non-canonical gospel, like Mary was just sort of like this hidden person, you know, I think it's the Proto-Evangelium of James, says that as a young girl, she was taken to the temple, probably because her parents were very old when she was born and they died. And so she was placed under the protection of Zechariah at the temple. She was just a temple virgin, like, there until, like, it was time that she had to marry and then was entrusted to St. Joseph as her guardian. So, like, what great things has he done for her? And then she goes on. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He's cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's come to the help of his servant Israel, for he's remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. She's recalling all the things the Lord has done for her in the history of her identity as the daughter of Zion. So she identifies with the people of Israel. And the way she was able to trust in him is because she knew that he had always shown up when they needed him. And how did she know that? Because she knows her history. He's shown the strength of his arm and scattered the proud in their conceits. During the Exodus, when Moses is leading the people out of slavery and they cross the Red Sea and the sea comes crashing in on Pharaoh, he showed the strength of his arm and he scattered the proud in their conceit. It was also a moment in which he cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly which also could refer to that moment of salvation history in which David, the smallest and weakest among his brothers, becomes the king of Israel. He's filled the hungry with good things. When the people were starving in the desert as they were wandering for 40 years, he sent them quail and he sent them manna and he fed them. He's remembered his promise of mercy. You know, in this moment, now he's fulfilling the promise he made all the way back in Genesis 3 
when he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You shall strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. And so she identifies with all of the things that the Lord has done to prove his trustworthiness. Because she's the daughter of Zion. When she reflects on the Lord, she reflects on all the ways that he has shown up in the world, in the history of salvation, to prove that he is God and we are not. That we can trust in him. And being so rooted in that identity of being able to trust in him, when she's told at 14, you're going to be the mother of God, she's able to say, let it be done to me according to your word. There's an order in that. And then her motherhood is an expression of like doing for us what the Lord did for her. Of being able to be our comforter. Of having a kind of perfect empathy for us in our suffering. Walking with us as we walk towards Jesus. Being a source and a sign of our hope. And when we ask Mary as our mother to intercede for us, when we ask her to help us to have a faith like hers, that prayer is asking her to help us to see how our Lord is trustworthy and has shown up in our life over and over and over again in order to reveal himself as trustworthy so that we can place our hearts in his hands. You know, it's a necessary first step to go back to who is God. He's the one that's trustworthy. Okay, now I can trust him. We don't simply trust as an act of the will. It would be foolish to trust as an act of the will. Because we have to know that that person is going to show up in our lives. It's our responsibility as priests to prove ourselves to be trustworthy so that people will have the confidence to come and share with us their hearts. And we can have institutional trustworthiness, but then sometimes that gets broken. And it's a time all of us need to work on our own conversion and our own ability to be there. Same thing happens with parents and children. You know, we all know that we should be able to trust our mothers and our fathers because that's who they are. And by definition, it means they're trustworthy. But all of us have had times in our lives where maybe they, they didn't show up or they weren't trustworthy and they've had to regain our trust. Unless you were raised by the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph, right? there's some point in your life where trust has been broken in some way. And it's our Lord who desires to step into your life and say, I am trustworthy. It's Mary who gives us that example.
of placing our faith in the person who's trustworthy. And all of that is possible as our own hearts are converted and we live our faith from the inside. And we recognize that it's Jesus who speaks and it's Jesus who calls us. It's Jesus who touches us each time we receive him in the Eucharist. It's the same Jesus who healed crippled people and forgave sinners. The same Jesus who suffered and died everything that we've suffered. So that he could resurrect on the third day. And just as his body was transformed, so too our lives, our hearts, and our own bodies one day will be transformed. And so today, let us pray that our Lord will reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand, that we'll come to know his trustworthiness, and that we'll be encouraged to place our hearts in his hands, that they may be transformed in his great and merciful love.